You're listening to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Lee Johnson, and I'm joined here by my two fabulous co-hosts, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles Peterson. How are you guys doing today? Hey, y'all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Kirby enthusiasm. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing good. I'm feeling really great. All right. So before we get started, like usual, we want to get your drinks and your rants and raves. So Rick, what are you drinking today and what is your rant and rave? So today I just ordered a Paloma, but instead of with tequila, I ordered it with mezcal because I've been digging some mezcal these days. And the Paloma is one of my favorite summer drinks. I know it's all popular right now, but some popular things are actually good. Like the Bee Gees. (laughs) (laughs) My rave is Dorothy Dandridge. I don't know if you all know Dorothy Dandridge, but... That's a deep cut. I like that. What a remarkable voice. There's a style of jazz singer that is just so incredibly clear, and she has such a clear voice. And by the way, if you're looking for a place to start, I highly recommend Smooth Operator. Cha, 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 cha. (laughs) So that's my rave. My, My rant is the in quotes, Reverend Pat fucking Robertson. I don't know why we haven't ranted about him before or every single time. That's why, because we'd never stop. (laughs) I think I forgot he was alive. (laughs) Well, on a broadcast at the end of June, he, like many right-wing assholes, is on and on about critical race theory. And during his rant about critical race theory... The dude actually said, people of color have the whip handle now. And I'm like, you, what? If only that were true. (laughs) 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 No, Charles, he said that people of color have the whip handle and they're making white people behave the way they want them to. The projection is amazing. It is. It is amazing. All right. But in, in that context, to use the whip handle, come on, come on. Yeah, dog whistle much. <laughs> All right, Charles, what about you? What is your drink order and what is your rant and rave this week? Oh, I could use a Tito's with soda with like a splash of mango juice. Oh. All right, now. You know, because it's the summer and I feel like I, I would rather be in the Caribbean. You know, you could get a splash of Fresca in there. And it would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, I took the Fresca test. I'm failing. I'm failing the Fresca test. But we'll still take your sponsorship, Fresca. Yes, we'll still take your sponsorship. Fresca, call us. My rant is this celebration of billionaire solipsism that seems to be taking place. In like eight days, we have two billionaires who decide that they just want to go on a luxury hop to space for shits and giggles. And, you know, Richard Branson, I used to love Virgin Records back in the day, so I don't really have too much critique of him. But Jeff Bezos comes back sitting there at that press conference after 10 minutes in space with that dumbass cowboy hat like he wants to be an extra from the right stuff working out these little boy fantasies and thanking the people that he exploited that he didn't pay and their expectation pays for his ability to go on a pleasure cruise to space. In a giant penis. In a giant penis. And I just thought... With a smaller penis inside. (laughs) 
I just thought this is the absolute worst. I don't know of a single science fiction story that's dystopian that doesn't center the oppressive, cruel corporation at the heart of the narrative. And this is where we're going. And the media just eats up the fact that these two assholes who don't pay taxes, who shit on their workers, who are not even going into space for any legitimate scientific purpose, just for shits and giggles. Just one second. They went to space like people in the suburbs are from Chicago. So they were kind of near space. (laughs) That's that's right. Like people from Long Island who, who say, oh, I'm from New York City. No, no, you're from Nassau County. Nassau County, I spent a year there one weekend. (laughs) So that's my rant. My rave is country as fuckness. Which means I like all these things that we call country, all these things that, if you're familiar with Southern culture, are so indicative of Southern culture, but which are so human and they're so beautiful and they're so centering and so spiritually nourishing, like sitting on a friend's porch on a nice evening, having a drink and just talking shit. The hospitality of it, the warmth of it, the openness of the South. It's a horrific space from certain historical, cultural moments and perspectives. But in other ways, it's such an amazing, embracing, bosomy sort of place. So, you know, let's get back to some grits. Let's get back to some black eyed peas and some greens. And let's just eat some cornbread and sit back and just get all sleepy and nappy after that meal. So (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and rave about country as fuckness. I'm going to take my shoes off now. (laughs) I just want to note for the record that Charles just recently came to Memphis and spent some time on my porch. Yep. (laughs) And just weirdly took a nap on it afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you fed him all that barbecue. I mean, that's right. That's right. What do you expect? (laughs) What is a person to do? (laughs) Lee, Lee, what's your drink order and what are you ranting and raving about? I'm going to stick with my usual Fireball and Diet Coke today. And weirdly, my rant was the exact same as Charles's rant. So see above. I'm not going to repeat it. I am also ranting about the space colonizers who don't pay taxes. I think that when Jeff Bezos in the interview right after he came back to Earth said, I want to thank all the Amazon employees and all the Amazon customers. You paid for this. My first thought was like, Fuck did he you. just literally say the quiet part out loud? <laughs> like, yes, yes, he did. So, yes, my rave this week is Dion Warwick on Twitter. So if you don't follow Dionne Warwick on Twitter, you absolutely must. She is hilarious. So she only came on to Twitter a few months ago, and just in her first few weeks on Twitter, she made a splash with this kind of, I mean, whoever knows if it's a naive engagement or it's a performance, but famously, she tweeted at Chance the Rapper and said, since you're obviously a rapper, why do you have the rapper in your name? (laughs) (laughs) And Chance the Rapper was just so shocked that Dion Warwick even knew who he was. You know, he replied, you can call me whatever you want. I'm shocked that you know who I am. And so she then replies, from now on, I'm Dion the singer. (laughs) 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 But that's just her vibe on Twitter. And I love her. And Twitter can be an ugly place. But then there are these people like Dion Warwick on Twitter who make it wonderful. So definitely follow Dion Warwick on Twitter. If I may, one 
one quick sidebar. Like two, three years ago, I think uh, an alligator had escaped in Chicago. Yeah. And was being searched for. And the local police named the, the alligator Chance the Snapper. <laughs> yeah. That was right in my neighborhood, the park at oh, the end of my street. Oh, oh, my God. All right. Well, let's jump into today's episode. Rick is actually back in the hot seat for today's episode. So, Rick, why don't you give us a little preview about what we're going to be talking about today? I noticed, by the way, that Lee refers to it as the hot seat, whereas Charles refers to it as the captain's chair. And so I'm usually in the hot seat. I don't think I've ever been in the captain's chair. (laughs) Okay, let me back that up. Rick is in the extremely warm captain's seat today. Rick, why don't you tell us what we're talking about? So today we're going to be talking about the white working class. And I think more so about the grievances of the white working class and how we take that up, how we respond to it. Is it important to respond to it? Is it important not to affirm it? What do we do about this obvious moment we find ourselves in, in which the white working class are clearly lashing out? And I I don't mean this necessarily in a negative way, but like many dying animals, they're most dangerous as they're in their death throes. And so I want to talk with you all about the white working class and their grievances. I will say that I started thinking about this because years ago, and I don't even remember the author's name, we'll put it in the show notes, but there was a book written called How the Irish Became White. And it was a discussion of the ways in which Irish immigrants, when they first came to the U.S., they weren't considered white. In Chicago, for example, there were no Irish allowed signs and they dug the trench that became the sanitary canal and they were dying at a rate of thousands and thousands per month as they're digging this. So I don't want to say that there isn't a kind of racial history there. But then the other side of me worries that this gets trotted out. You know, well, the Irish weren't always white, or I hear this often about Italians or Sicilians, as if somehow that lends some legitimacy to the grievances that are being expressed. So this is one issue that I'm genuinely perplexed about, and that's why I wanted to talk with the two of you about this, because... It's not such a simple issue, I don't think. That's right, listeners. You have tuned in to the intellectual elite's views on (laughs) the white working class. (laughs) Yeah, but remember, we all learn to speak Middle Academies. This isn't our native language. That's right. That's right. So, I start off with just a definitional question, which I think may be helpful going forward. What are we counting as the white working class? Because one of the problems with talking about class in America is that we just don't share a common language about class. And so when some people talk about the white working class, they're talking about the white poor. And when other people talk about the white working class, they're talking about Let's say white people who make in the 20th to 50th percentile of incomes, and many of whom are a demographic who deeply hate the poor and resent the poor and distinguish themselves from the poor. So when you say the white working class, what do you mean by working class? 
I, I think that's a really interesting question. There's an old book written by Paul, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name, Faisal, Faisal, simply called Class, I think, where he talks about the difficulty of talking about class in the United States because we are, in quotes, a classless society. And yet his argument is we can just look around and we could pick out immediately who's in what class. And what I found interesting about his diagnosis is that he has upper class, middle class, and lower class, and those are all divided into upper, middle, and lower. So upper, upper class, middle, upper class, and lower, upper class, and so on down the line. But he bounds this whole upper, middle, and lower class with what he calls the out of sights. So he argues that the incredibly wealthy during the Depression and after the Depression moved out of sight. So they moved out of Manhattan, they moved out of Chicago, into these places where you can't even see them from the road you're driving on. And then on the lower end, we have the out of sights in terms of they are not participants in the economic system at all, and they're equally out of sight. And so when I talk about white working class, I certainly don't mean those people who are out of sight. And I think Lee is right that there is an awful lot of animosity toward the poor on the part of, let's say, and I'll grab Lee's definition here, those making between the 20th and 50th percentile of income in, in the United States. I think this used to get tied up with old-fashioned labor, like working in the lumber mill or in the foundry or in the steel mill or sure. being a plumber or an electrician. But I, I think more and more, the, the jobs that are available to this class that I'm talking about are more like Walmart or Amazon or jobs that they're not making nearly as much as they used to and don't have the benefits they used to have. So that's what I'm thinking about when I think about the white working class. See, my thing is, and I completely understand and agree with you up to a certain point, and I think there is room to talk about questions of class in terms of questions of labor, labor position, relationship to the means of production, trying to be a good Marxist in certain ways. But at the same time, coming from my background in African philosophy and certainly coming from Afro-Marxism, along with that economic class positioning and status, there's also the question of the racialization of class mm. and, and I guess the classification of race, right? So mm -hmm. I agree the grievance that you talk about in terms of the white working class is not new. And I think that's important for listeners who may not be regularly speaking about this. It's not new. This is as old as the Republic. It's the bete noir of America white working grievance. But I think it's important to certainly put a pin in this point of talking about actual class position and class relations. And then we have to actually expand that and start talking about whiteness and white consciousness. And then when you talk about the Noel Ignatiev, how the Irish became white, or David Rodiger's great book, The, the Abolition of Whiteness, or W.E.B. Du Bois' brilliant insight from the Black Reconstruction, his idea of the wages of whiteness, now we're talking about a particular sort of consciousness that embraces people. Now we would call Europeans. Now we would call them whiteness. But the foundation and the construction of that consciousness is really based on an anti-black racism and a formulation of group and community and traditions that's based upon not being black. So that's how the Irish, who you're right, are hated. 
They're hated by the English, their class tensions within England, their colonial tensions within England. 700 years of English colonialism, the Irish suffered. The religious split, because many of them were Catholics when they came to the United States, which is a Protestant nation for the most part. You know, no dogs are Irish allowed, but they could become white. Italians, there's a whole discourse on how Italians became white. There's a whole discourse on how Jews from Europe became white. So I think what you're discussing, Rick, is not necessarily just a particular socioeconomic and cultural position, but thinking about a broader consciousness which can envelop, and depending on the moment, paper over very real economic class positions, contradictions, and tensions. I think that's such an important point. And I think that when we talk about the white working class in the 21st century, the WWC, a lot of times (laughs) we have to ask which W is more important. Right. Like the white or the working. And I wonder if you would agree with this, because I I do think that in a sense, one characteristic that defines the white working class is their embattled sense of being antagonized by someone, by the world. And the question is, who is that antagonist? If it's non-white people, then the first W is more important. If it's wealthy people or non-working poor people, then the second W is more important. And that might lead to even larger structural questions, which might be something like, well, how rotten to the core is America with white supremacy? Or how rotten to the core is capitalism with its white supremacy? Which might, again, give us a way of determining which of those Ws is more important. But I do think that I'm increasingly persuaded by these arguments that you can't pull those two things apart. You can't pull those two W's apart. You can't say one is more important because this animal, the white working class, is in the 21st century a unique phenomenon that is produced both by out-of-control capitalism and by the unchecked white supremacy that has embedded itself both in democracy and capitalism And people cannot see the actual realities of their lives outside of that framework. You know, recently, and I'm glad the term and the idea has returned to public consideration, but this idea of racial capitalism, which is being assigned to Cedric Robinson and his really magisterial work, Black Marxism. And, you know, to do a deep disservice to Dr. Robinson, basically the argument is that racism, white supremacy is not a secondary feature of capitalism, but it is embedded in capitalism. It's there at the core. And you don't have capitalism without this particular type of othering, which in the context of the Western world becomes racialization. Like racialization is a part of capitalism and you can't distinguish or tear them apart. I wanted to go back to this consciousness that Charles raised earlier, because I think this is a really crucial point, because it seems to me that if there is a consciousness, and I'd like to talk more about what are the features of of, of that consciousness, but if there is a consciousness that envelops, I, I really like that language Charles used, if there's a consciousness that envelops, then it would never be a question of being able to pull apart the class consciousness from the consciousness of whiteness or white consciousness, that these, in a sense, are, are one and the same. And I think, Charles, you're quite right to, to say that it's inherently othering and that that othering is 
not just as a historical accident, but I think Marx himself would point out it's going to start in the colonies or against the colonies. It's not as if colonialism doesn't have a, a racial justification. But there is this othering that turns out then to be racial. And then I think it is quite difficult to pull these apart, which is why I think no one was talking in the last election about the working class but specifically about the white working class. And by the way, I, I just want, in case anyone is listening who identifies themselves as such, not all of them are aggrieved, but this was a, a moment that was teased out, and, and maybe this is the media's fault. I just want to tell a quick story to get at this. So if you buy the book, The Thought of Matter, available on Amazon.com. Call us, Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> when you get back to Earth. When you get back to Earth, give us a call about a sponsorship <laughs> and sell my book. So I tell the story there, but I was at a funeral for someone in my family and my godmother, my Aunt Peggy, would take me around and introduce me to people as, you know, this is my nephew, Rick. He's my godson and he's a professor of philosophy. And she was so proud. And that's not the working class that is aggrieved and pitching grievances. So the, there are elements here that I think we need to separate out. Yeah, I also think there's a whole other white working class, which is extremely progressive, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's a whole white working class of people who are union organizers, who are anti-racist, who are progressives. And one of the things that really struck me about the media's characterization of the white working class in the lead up to the 2016 election is this selection of one particular slice of the white working class, which is the reactive racist slice. <laughs> and I think that, I mean, I, I'm guilty of this too. We've all just kind of taking that up. It's like, oh yeah, that's what we mean when we mean the white working class. When we're talking about white working people who are progressive, then we don't call them the white working class. We call them progressives. And so how did that happen? How did it get reduced to this one particular slice of the white working class? The demographic that gets called the white working class now, I think most people would say are resentful, are angry, are probably racist and homophobic and sexist, are religious in a very particular evangelical Christian sense. Like, how else would we describe them? Well, uh, some of the work that the discussion of the white working class does is to avoid calling them rural because there is historically a difference between the urban working class and the rural working class. And Lee, everything you just described, as I think about it, I think this is not Chicago, this is Kansas or Nebraska or so rural versus urban, I, I wonder. This goes back to the idea about whiteness and consciousness. Despite the splits within a particular set of workers having a particular relationship to the means of production, because I think that's, a, I have to articulate it to stay very clear about what we mean by class right. in the traditional sense of class. Whiteness still overlays whatever conflicts there may be between the second generation Polish still working here in Indiana and the fourth generation rural farmer out in Seymour, Indiana. 
And both of those groups, the workers, have their particular ways of articulating animosity, antagonism, a protectiveness of their position and resources over and against primarily blackness, but people of color in, in general. So whether it fits in the steel mills of Gary in the 20s and 30s, then there's a resistance to allowing black workers who are migrating up from Mississippi and, and, and Alabama to become members of the union. But if you are that farmer in Seymour, Indiana, then there's probably a real deep resistance to any black people owning land and, and existing as your neighbor. So I think class is necessary and, and is important, but we cannot escape the fact that this thing called whiteness is able to expand beyond class. Perfect example, the whole discourse about what made Trump so attractive in 2016 was economic anxiety. We're seeing the effects of NAFTA. We're seeing the effects of globalization. We're seeing the ways in which deindustrialization is beginning to undermine this assumed economic safety net or stability of working class people. Sidebar, there are people of color who are working class as well. I'm saying so the media's use of working class to mean exclusively white is infuriating. But what subsequent studies found is that a lot of Trump supporters were not working class people. They were not people with just high school diplomas. They were actually people who made six figures and had college degrees. So not necessarily what he was appealing to was this sense of economic alienation and disenfranchisement. He was appealing to a certain type of racial antagonism and and racial grievance that transcended economic positions. But the last point, and this goes back to Lee's point about what do we call progressive working class people, those same studies show that in many cases, whites who were less likely to have had college degrees and have high school diplomas were less likely than college educated whites to support Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think those are all really good points. I just want to pick up on your characterization of the white working class's sense of its own class position as being thoroughly racialized. Because I think one really interesting thing that we saw in the last 10 years is that the white working class sees their antagonists as both the extremely poor and the extremely rich which means that there are also white antagonists for them, right? Like the white poor they don't like and the white extremely rich they don't like either, but they don't like them for thoroughly racialized reasons, which is that the white poor are moochers. They're moochers like black people, like immigrants. So it's thoroughly racialized. And the extremely rich, extremely rich white people are grifters. So they're grifters like fill in all of the racial stereotypes about the Chinese. So I think that you're exactly right that this particular slice of the white working class that we're talking about, their class consciousness, to the extent that it is anything resembling a real class consciousness, their class consciousness is so overlaid with racist tropes that it weirdly sometimes trumps their racial alliances, right? Like they're not even good white supremacists in a way. (laughs) Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the hotel bar, you can catch us on Twitter at hotel bar podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. 
O-N-E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. In the off chance that you weren't furiously scribbling notes just in, you can also visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know there. Now, back to our conversation. I'm wondering, is there actually anything that we could identify as class consciousness belonging to the white working class. And so maybe the second W is, or the WC, well, no, that's, but the, 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 the for, class. For our European listeners, Rick didn't mean that. <laughs> I didn't mean where you go poopy. Uh, that's a callback to a previous episode. So can they be a class if they don't have a class consciousness? And I think Charles is exactly right. Just this is a small aside because it infuriated me but I read in this article in The Atlantic today, which had almost nothing to do about anything related to this, that the centerpiece of Marx's philosophy is class conflict. And in fact, that's not the centerpiece to Marx's philosophy. That is the result of the centerpiece to Marx's philosophy, namely that we produce commodities for the purpose of exchange. Therefore, different people have different relations to the modes of production. That's what constitutes a class. And those different relations to production are in conflict with one another. Okay, end of that rant. Um, <laughs> Imagine that a journalist doesn't read upon what they're writing about. <laughs> I know, it's hard, it's hard to believe. Okay, so then the question, I, I, because Lee, when you were talking, I started thinking that... Is it just a, a kind of racial consciousness that actually stands in the place? Because as Charles mentioned, it stands in the place of class consciousness because it also in an odd way allows for a certain optimism about upward mobility. So now if we're all anti-black, if me and Jeff Bezos are all together opposed to blackness and, and to people of color in general, then... I could see, well, one day I could be just like Jeff Bezos, not just in the fact that I'm racist as hell, but also that I could get rich and maybe get my own penis to space one day. And, <laughs> and so I'm just wondering. It's if, a boy's dream. <laughs> Boy is the operative word. Yeah. Hey, I just got to tell you, you men, you're not sending your best people. <laughs> um, Lee, I'm, I'm afraid we might be. So, yeah, I'm just wondering, are we wrong to talk about them as working class if there's no class consciousness? Or is there actually, in addition to this racial consciousness, is there also a, a class consciousness? I think there is a class consciousness. And I think what Trump was able to do is to hit up on a certain populism. And it's a populism that allows for a certain critique of an upper strata of society. But, and this is not, I mean, this is not original to Trump because never had an original thought in his fucking head, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> but it's the ability to craft 
or carve out those who have relatively liberal or progressive politics and think about their relationship. And we're talking really like the early 1960s with the shift in the Democratic Party towards embracing black constituents and voters. The ability to make them into the elite, to make them into the masters of society with their cultural dominance. And this starts with, really starts with Goldwater and then it's Nixon and then carries on through these various conservative officials. Their ability to have a class critique but it's also a very narrow cultural and geographical and racial critique, which allows for them to curry the antagonism of white working class people. And we mean working class in terms of relationship to the means of production. But I can direct it not at all of the rich, but I can direct it at the rich that are associated with a certain type of politics that we see as a threat to what we understand or hope to be our way of life. So rich conservatives get off. This populism that these right-wingers articulate, it doesn't involve the Koch brothers. Trump himself, who is not a billionaire, but certainly is a rich guy, for some reason it doesn't include him. So you have all these figures, all these rich whites, billionaires, who somehow are not guilty for any of the supposed crimes that the elites are committing. Those elites are New York, West Coast, so forth and so on. Certainly taints of anti-Semitism are part of that as well. Mm. So there's a class consciousness, but it's fused with a particular sort of racialized vision along with it. So let me float this as a possibility. I might agree that there is a class consciousness of the white working class in America in the 21st century, but it is absolutely not a class consciousness in the Marxian sense. I think one of the reasons why what we call the white working class sees themselves as a group, let's say, is because everything about what the three of us might call class consciousness is first filtered through A, white supremacy, and B, a particular kind of moralistic capitalism that is thoroughly infused with Christianity and so allows for exceptions to how we understand who belongs in our class that, quite simply, no reading of Marx would permit. So I think that they can see, for example, that, you know, these prosperity evangelists, they can overlook the fact that they're extremely wealthy and have absolutely nothing in common with their parishioners or congregants or whatever— because, again, that filter, uh, that moralistic filter of Christianity-infused capitalism is creating this funhouse mirror effect. And also, they can separate themselves from the poor whites because the poor whites have morally failed. So let me just go on the record as saying, when we're talking about the white working class, I think the first W is the most important W. But I think that in order to understand why it is the most important W, you have to understand that whiteness in this country is always filtered through A, Christianity, and B, a kind of moralistic capitalism. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that to a certain extent. I guess my question is, and, and maybe just my tools of analysis are like I brought the wrong toolbox, because I've been struggling to think since the 80s. I just wanted to leave that as a period. I've been struggling <laughs> to think since the 80s. <laughs> I 
haven't had a single goddamn thought since the 80s. My last thought was, take on me? <laughs> and I would contemplate it like a Buddhist koan. <laughs> take on me. Take on me. So I've been struggling to figure out since the 80s the reason why... And I think we weren't really using the phrase white working class at the time, but why the white working class at that time, they were called Reagan Democrats, why they are invested in all of these things which are not in their own self-interest. In fact, which Mm -hmm. are detrimental to their own self-interest. So, for example, why anti-abortion? Why anti-union? Why, you know, anti-queers, anti-queers? I mean, Why are they invested in all of these things? And I hatched a theory back then that I don't think is the right theory anymore, but namely that this kind of coincided with the time in which the left gave up the straightforward economic argument. And so the left was no longer speaking directly to economic grievances, and the right was willing to come up with a narrative like, oh, you're still struggling like you always have, but now I know why. You know why? Because queers are getting married and blacks are taking your jobs and I'm trying to think of all the other horrible things. The borders are open. The The borders borders are open. The borders are open and unions are corrupt. So that's why your life is miserable. And so I'm not saying that's a racially free message, quite the contrary, but at least it was a narrative overlay, what in olden days we used to call ideology, b- back in the 1900s. Last century. <laughs> um, I remember those days. <laughs> so it, it was something like a narrative that made a certain kind of sense. And, and so, Lee, that's not against what you were saying, but that's my take on what you were talking about. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. I do think that, like you, well, like all of us, I think that we have all struggled to understand how it is that the working class can be so passionately invested in things that are contrary to their interests. But I think that, again, we're misunderstanding how they understand their own interests. And so it is entirely in their interest to be against the immigrants and the blacks and the queers and women who want to have some modicum of say about their own bodies because pushing against all of those things or antagonizing all of those issues or groups of people constitute them as a class. That is how they understand themselves as a class. They do not understand themselves as a class in what we would understand as Marxian terms or even just basic capitalist economic terms, like who makes how much money. Lee, is, is your point there that I said what their class interests were because I am PH dumb? You are PH <laughs> don't have a clue. <laughs> You're PH dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> You listen to us, and we want to hear from you. If you've got feedback, suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, we encourage you to visit www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page, where we often solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. 
If you want to hear yourself on HBS, you can always email us a less than two minutes audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we may use it. And if it's not, we'll definitely send you our Venmo handles so that you can virtually buy us a drink. Now, back to the conversation. I think Lee is definitely hitting the target dead center. Because let's think about this whole idea of MAGA. Let's think about this whole idea of make America great again. And what's being described is some sort of fallen Eden, is some sort of paradise that's now corrupt. Well, well, how did it get corrupted? Because if we're talking about the 1950s version of a working class sensibility, there are no black workers or there are mechanisms by which they can be restrained. The immigrants that we do encounter are what we would now call or can become white immigrants. So all of this speaks to a dream of a lost land. And whiteness is how you regain that land. So what you're talking about are these quantifiable, objective, materialist goals, minimum wages and health benefits and collective bargaining. But for them, the key to the real happiness and the real prosperity is the the cultural and racial landscape in which they imagine themselves to have existed. And also the gender and sexual landscape in which they imagine themselves to have existed. I wonder if you guys would agree with this. I wonder if it is the case that the ideology of the white working class, such that it is an ideology, doesn't actually require any ideological commitments in the way that we think of ideological commitments. Like, I believe X to be true. What it requires is only allegiance to the class as it is understood. And so when we see all of these bizarro ideological shifts, I mean, I'm thinking, for example, in the early 2000s, when the white working class was all verklempt because of Sharia law and have basically spent the last 20 years trying to institute some kind of Sharia law. Yeah, Sharia law, right? Like whatever the biblical version of Sharia law is. But in the exact same terms that they found so abhorrent previously, when we're just talking about things like, oh my God, let people wear burqas in public. But I'm, I'm wondering if it is the case that we get presented this caricature in the media of the white working class as if it's ideological in a way that at its core, it really isn't. It's actually a slippery and clever machine that is absolutely being orchestrated by actors somewhere, but that all it requires to be a part of the white working class is an allegiance to the white working class as it understands it on that day, on Tuesday. But I'm wondering if it's not an allegiance to the white working class, but an allegiance to whiteness. And here's why I think about this. I don't know if you all caught this, but in the new version of this education bill the Texas legislature is trying to ram through, they have forbidden the teaching of this statement. The Ku Klux Klan was an immoral organization. So if this passes, you cannot teach that in Texas anymore. Now, that doesn't seem to me to be a commitment to any kind of class in any recognizable sense. It's a commitment to whiteness, I I think. But also then, I think in a way, 
some of what Charles was saying and some of what you were just saying, Lee, made me think of this essay by Sally Hanslinger. I forget the title of it, but she talks about the difference between natural kinds, essential kinds, and gerrymandered. So mm -hmm. this is a notion of species or sets, or we might even say classes or groups. I, I think what we're talking about here is what she would call a gerrymandered class. That is, yeah. it's not something you, you know, look out and you're like, oh, okay, this is a class because it has these characteristics or an, an essential kind. Well, this is a class because, you know, they're all penguins or something like that. This is a class <laughs> that is a group of people who are just a group of people who are in the group of people. And that what, whatever then the group of people believes, it's like kids playing soccer, like wherever the ball is, that's where the whole team is. And that's how this class moves around. Wherever the ball is, they're on it. And I think that the ball there is whiteness. I mean, again, I'll just say, I think that it is the case that this is not a class in the traditional Marxian sense. Now, when I think about the white working class, I think that the first W, white, is most important descriptively, but the second W, working, is most important prescriptively. The problem is, is that the self-understanding of that class is a descriptive self-understanding, and you can't communicate the prescriptive possibility of the second W because they only understand themselves as primarily white. I think you're right. Well, it's a cult. I think the word that we've been looking for, it's, it, it's a cult. Because how else do you expect that this group can withstand these antinomies? How can you get on board with Trump's articulation of a certain type of populism? But at the same time, you don't blink, you don't think twice. You casually watch the Republican Party sign off the biggest tax cut in the history of the country and run up the deficit by literally trillions of dollars. Or how can you be so worried about a blood drinking, sex trafficking, pedophilic cabal and even countenance Matt Gates? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you're right. There's no evidence he ever drank blood. Alleged. Alleged. So I, th I think what has to be understood, and this is what makes this such a dangerous and such a difficult and such a slippery thing to get a handle on, because we see that we're beyond the bounds of what any reading of Marx can really, really attune to. And, you know, let's not make Marx so pure, because the English working class are having their own difficulties with the Irish that are migrating to London for jobs. So we may call it nationalism, but it's really a racialized nationalism because the Irish are constructed as a certain type of race. So this is not new. Once again, Cedric Robinson. But I think what makes this so difficult is that it's so deeply irrational. And I don't mean irrational in terms of it fails to have a certain logic to it, but I mean irrational in terms of it's tapping into this almost primal existential consciousness. I think in some cases that these workers, this class of people, fully have a handle on what's happened to them. So that's why dog whistles work so effectively. The way I think about it is that whiteness functions as a trap door in the back of the consciousness of those who see themselves or have been taught or experienced their lives as being white and that it can be hacked. And that's what the dog whistles do. It hacks that consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I think that at its core, it is very similar to a religion. And that's why earlier I was trying to describe it as not actually requiring ideological commitments, but only requiring allegiance. So co contradictions don't matter. Right, exactly, exactly. One's ability to leap past the contradictions is, is a greatest show of faith. 
And it also is in your interest. Just to go back to Rick's earlier point, where from the outside, we look at some of the actions of the white working class and we're like, how do you keep acting against your interests? But it is in your interest if it, again, maintains the integrity of the group. Well, and also I would say that it's also... Um, a part of your material interest in a much more traditional Marxist way. I've never been one to say, oh, it's false consciousness. Forgive them for they know not what they do. For every working class white homeowner in Chicago in the 1950s who's burned a cross on the lawn of a black person that wants to move into the neighborhood, they know good and well that what they're preserving is the value of their home based upon the way in which the market reacts to the inclusion of black people in neighborhoods. They know property values drop when you start to integrate neighborhoods. I wonder for every mortgage denied to a prospective black homeowner within urban spaces starting after the founding of the FHA, how much of that money was there left that could be loaned to white workers who want to buy homes? Yeah, right. but then there but then there are also competing phenomena where you look at things like why is most of the white working class against raising the minimum wage where you can't have that explanation where it's like oh because refusing to raise the minimum wage is is going to benefit white people. I mean, there are definitely phenomena where just from a strict class perspective the allegiances to this group are contrary to the economic interests of that group. I'm with you 100% on this, Lee. That and and okay, so I'm I'm sorry for people from Montana or Wyoming. I was once in Wyoming as a kid. I've never been to Montana, and frankly, the very idea Montana scares the shit out of me. <laughs> it's it's um, actually really lovely. Oh, because it has like nature in it and shit. There's nature um, everywhere. Nature's all over the place. Yeah, no, it's nasty with nature. Um, <laughs> but my imagination is that there are like three black people in the entire state. That's Oregon. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, Montana. Wyoming, though, I think also has three black people in the entire state. And yet, uh, in my imagination, they're racist as fuck. So there I can't see the economic interest. This is not, Charles, to deny what you were saying, that there have been and continue to be ways in which policies that have a racialized distribution, inequitable distribution, they go to the material benefit of white people, for sure. But I, I think that there's something more than just the material interest. And see, this is... I, I mean, I, I would push back a little bit on Lee's point that their only interest is allegiance. And so maybe we need another term. But you put your finger on it, I think, Charles, that why do so many of the avowed positions of what the media calls the white working class, why are they contrary to their own material interests? And that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. There's a great book by Jonathan Metzl, professor at Vanderbilt University called Dying of Whiteness. And he asks that very question. How is it that in these communities that are plagued by gun violence, that are plagued by Oxycontin addiction, that are plagued by poverty and low access to health care, why do these constituents, and he looks at communities in Missouri and Kentucky and Tennessee, I believe, why do they keep voting for elected officials that do not direct any money into these issues that plague their communities? 
and this is no disrespect to, to Dr. Metzl by reducing it to such a simple formulation, members of these communities don't want an expansion of health care because they don't want non-deserving people, i.e. black people, brown people, to get health care. So if that means we suffer in order for the other not to have access to this, then we will make that sacrifice. That's fucked up. It's an amazing book called Dying of Whiteness. It's a really powerful book. Yeah, I, I was going to say, people in, just to go with my stereotypes for a moment, people in Montana are against the expansion of healthcare, not because they're not going to have access to a hospital if healthcare is expanded in Montana, but because they just want to deny it to Black folk and Gary. That is fucked up. And you don't have to have a PH dumbass in order to know how screwed up that is. The ideology in the old-fashioned sense, then, is just the ideology of whiteness. Now we circle back to where Charles began, functions in the way ideologies always do, namely as a kind of consciousness. And by that I mean a way in which I understand myself, a way in which I understand the world, and a way in which I understand myself in relation to that world. So that's not class in the economic sense. That's class in, a, in an entirely different sense. And it's, it's also, if you think about ideologies as being established on a particular set of truths, then the truth is the supremacy of whiteness. Right. That is the foundation of it. That is absolutely the foundation of it. Which until four years ago, you couldn't say out loud. And now increasingly, you can say it just straight out loud. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have a little journey there because I was not buying Lee's point that this is in their interest, but I kind of came around to it. So it's fun to have an intellectual journey. It's a psychic interest. Like I said, this is why Du Bois's phrase, the wages of whiteness, hmm. when he talks about the ways in which the elite former Confederates were able to recapture the attention and the support of white yeomen post-Civil War, despite the fact that there were a lot of what we call working class critiques of the Civil War from the side of the South because they were like, oh, we don't own slaves. We don't have access to politics because we don't own property. I mean, the whole state of West Virginia exists because of that. Right, right. But this idea that there's an inherent superiority within your racial position that gives you access to Whatever marginal amount of resources are available, as long as black people don't receive the same amount of access. So that's why you can be poor and be rabidly anti-black, despite the fact that you are so amazingly poor because you're still being exploited by this capitalist master. The understanding is, no matter how poor I am, I'm still getting something more than this black person. I still have access to certain types of social standing and cultural validity, as long as black people don't have that as well. Once every episode, as a public service to Hotel Bar Sessions regular listeners, your HBS hosts offer a quick-fire segment of random facts that you can use to spice up your future cocktail party conversations. A random fact. During the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, about 30 people were killed in Chicago by police and militia, and hundreds were injured. Today's random fact is, for those who are planning to travel as the pandemic settles down, you lose up to 30% of your taste buds during flight. Here's an interesting fact. Samsung tests phone durability with a butt-shaped robot. 
People stash their phones in their back pockets all the time, which is why Samsung created a robot that is shaped like a butt. And yes, even wears jeans to sit on their phones to make sure they can take the pressure. All right, you guys, if you could say one thing, deliver one message to the white working class that you think might move them forward, not in the sense that they think of moving forward, but in the sense that we think of moving forward. So I'm asking for a kind of therapeutic answer here. What should we say to the white working class? Charles, I'm going to go with you first, and then I'm going to come to Rick. What I would say, and I wrestle with this a lot, what I would say to the white working class. Well done. All right, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Back to you. I mean, and this is why I have nothing to say, because there's nothing that I can say that has not already been said to them. Hmm. by generations of activists and philosophers and theologians and politicians. I don't have a new language for them to understand where their infatuation with this sense of themselves has led the country, is leading the world. So I don't know what to say. And here's the thing. I can't say anything. Yeah, they're not listening to you anyway. Well, they're not listening to me anyway, but they have to make the decision. It's like an addict. You can't bring an addict out of their addiction. At a certain point, that addict has to make the decision on their own that I don't want to do alcohol or I don't want to do heroin and then seek the help. There's nothing I can say. Whiteness has to be resolved from within whiteness. It's not my problem. I suffer from it in many ways, but it's not my problem. What about you, Rick? I would say even if you killed everyone you hate, your life would still hurt. So let's start talking. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. What would you say, Lee? I would say you got nothing to lose but your chains. Let's go have a beer. <laughs> and, and the response becomes, do black people keep their chains? Because if I can let go of my chains and they keep their chains, we're good. Let's have that beer. Come on. Let's get a cold style and, and, and call it the apocalypse. My, my reverend, Pat Robertson, told me that people of color have the whip handle. So, <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, that just, uh, I can't even. No. All right, you guys, it looks like uh, Frangelica is giving us last call again. Frangelica, you have nothing to lose but your chains. We are going to be back next episode, and Charles is going to be in the extremely warm captain seat. Charles, what are we going to talk about next time? We are going to talk about the superhero as cultural figure, as psychological paradigm. We're going to think about the ways in which, in U.S. culture in particular, the superhero has taken on such a huge role in the imagination of multiple generations, right? It's hard to find someone between the age of 20 and 70 that hasn't read at least one comic book. So we're going to talk about the pros, the cons. We're going to talk about the benefits and maybe the detriments of our investment as a society in this fictional type. Can we also talk about anti-heroes? Oh, how could you not? (laughs) How could you not? Well, that sounds great. I'm super looking forward to that. And Rick, thanks so much for bringing up this topic. It's really timely. I've actually really learned a lot from both of you in this episode and and i'm not even sure that i am as resolved about what i thought i was resolved about so this gives me a lot more to think about but looking forward to another conversation next time i will catch you guys both for superheroes (laughs) bye bye